You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. So Richard, last week we discussed the five messages of initiation rites and and how these steps of initiation, how we can see them as as a way of sort of dying before we die and and the invitation for us in this moment with everything that we're we're facing with this pandemic. Um, but this week we're going to pivot and we're going to discuss the five sort of redemptive or resurrection aspects of each of these themes. Um, and to begin with, I wonder if you would describe what 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 do you mean by the common wonderful, and how is that how is that a way to how is that a lens for us to look through in this moment um, to find our way into a hopeful worldview? Okay, thank you for trusting me on this. I don't know that I deserve it, but. I came up with the phrase, the common wonderful, before we gave the rites the first time. I realized that as the men walked through this five-day experience, the first four days were pretty brutal. Uh, You know, really whomps on the side of the head of the ego. And I think that was what they were supposed to be. But I recognize that uh, certainly the typical uh, postmodern American young man is incapable of sustaining those unless he lives inside of something that is more beautiful than this is hard. And yet he can't do it alone. And that's why I, I call it the common wonderful. It, it can only be sustained by a family that thinks that way or a group of friends, or a society, or organization, or uh, you can't do the, the, the wonderful vision by yourself. You have to have reinforcement from people around you. Um, and uh, so we saved that till the last morning, uh, and I, I hope it had that effect, that I said, this is what it's all aiming for it isn't it isn't an end in itself to be told that you're not that important or you're going to die those are just to strip away the illusions and the false self so you're ready for the and, and desirous of the true self and it seemed to uh, have good effect uh, to my knowledge <coughs> excuse me To my knowledge, they still use it to this day. Uh, The scriptures I chose, I don't know if they changed those. They're certainly free to. But um, they were scriptures that came to me as representative of this positive vision that uh, what we, we call in that other diagram of order, disorder, reorder, this is the reordered, resurrected vision of what life ideally hopes to be. Uh, So help me unpackage that. Yes, I would love to be a part of that. Um, So I, you know, that brings up a lot of memories of going through the rites and that felt kind of felt sensation of what it's like to come to that place of, um, of meaning making, of seeing, of being stripped away of all these kind of false falsehoods and 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 embracing the reality that we're all swimming in, 
And this for me, Richard, connects something you've written about of when you say heaven and earth have to be put together of this world or this, or this world never becomes home. So let me read that again. Heaven and earth have to be put together or this world never becomes home. That integration is the necessary human and spiritual task. And I think that's part of what draws me into this, why I find this initiation process of reality doing that to us now so remarkable and timely is because it helps us find meaning within it. Can you speak to that about how does that integration of the negative and the positive of uh, how that helps us see the whole of this mystery of the whole of the, the path, the life and the death and the resurrection? You know, it comes to me as you ask the question, which is a good question. Uh, I think why a lot of us are so desirous of it today is that most of us grew up with those two pretty well split. That we were given the impression if we accepted the negative now, almost as a sacrifice or, or an atonement for our sins or an act of faith, the positive messages uh, would come later, and we call that heaven, which is, was a reward for putting up with, <laughs> with the hard truths. And um, I really don't think that's the gospel. Uh, uh, and that's why, well, one of those that you're probably going to quote soon is, my, come to me, all you who are, uh, you know, I am meek and humble of heart. My message is, is light. Jesus wasn't just walking around railing like a prophet. He was, but he was also letting John if the gospel is true, put his head on his chest with great intimacy and tenderness. So uh, this wasn't a, an angry um, zealot. This was a mystery of lover and beloved that he was drawing them into. So, yeah, that's what we called heaven. But you and I grew up with heaven being separated from earth. And uh, even uh, thinking we, uh, we, we couldn't allow ourselves to experience any heaven here. If we did, it was probably sinful. Now, I'm, <laughs> I'm probably talking as a Catholic. But, uh, you know, we called it mortification so forth. So that's why I was eager to put the positive, the little taste of heaven. If I hadn't had my early God experiences that told me it was a benevolent universe and I could trust it and I could live inside of it safely and happily, I don't think I could have tolerated the later hardships that came. So it's all, maybe I'm really doing it backwards in the initiation rites putting the negative first because it's what we don't want to hear and then giving them the positive. But I still trust that sequencing for some reason. I, I think it, it makes sense given that we have built cultures around ascent and success and pleasure and, and the avoidance of the reality of the real 
and a disconnection, an increased disconnection from the earth and from the natural cycles of life and death. And so I think given that, it, it really does make sense that we kind of have to be jolted with the, um, I don't want to say negative because you're right to not call it negative, but we have to be jolted with the real. We have to be jolted with the real, with the, with the human, the, the reality, the very real real, in order to then see the beauty and the hope of what's also real. Um, and that's something I really appreciate about this whole, um, the, the, these meditations and where you've gone with them, Richard, is that you're, you're kind of bringing together death and resurrection. And so I wondered if before we dive in, um, if we could just, if you would name what they are, the five kind of redemptive, and if you need us to read them, we have them in front of us. So you let us know. Now, why don't, why don't you read them? I've been talking too much. Okay. So I'll, Okay. Cool. I'll start and then, Paul, we can popcorn back and forth, old school. Like, there you like, go. Perfect. Like good Protestants. Um, okay. <laughs> the first one is, it is true that life is hard, as we talked about last week. It is true that life is hard, and yet my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that comes from Matthew eleven twenty eight. And our second one, which we know from last week, it is true that you are not important, and yet do you not know that your name is written in heaven? That comes from Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Third one says, it is true that your life is not about you. And yet I live now, not my own life, but the life of Christ who lives in me. And that's from Galatians 2.20. Fourth one, it is true that you are not in control. And yet can any of you, for all of your worrying, at a single moment to your span of life. Luke 12, verse 26. And finally, the fifth one. It is true that you are going to die, and yet neither death nor life can ever come between us and the love of God. Romans eight thirty-eight through 39. Now, that last one, of course, is from Paul. I kept them pretty short, uh, and they're honestly many other passages but those struck me as maybe the most succinct counter statements to the hard message um so help me unpackage them here we go all right let's do it so starting with the first one um which i just that's one of my favorite scripture passages that yet my yoke is easy <laughs> you know come to me all who are heavy laden so how does this redemptive um, initiation or this, this redemption of the first initiation invite us into a collective interconnected view of reality? In other words, you know, how, how our co consistent kind of persistence in, um, in, in living out the fallacy of our separateness, which contributes to our suffering, um, particularly in this moment when so many of us feel isolated and separated, how can we practice and live into this shared yoke that God and Christ is saying um, is in with us, is carrying with us, that we're not alone in this? You know, in actually giving the rights over a 10-year period here and in Europe and Australia, what I was often struck by, in fact, almost always struck by, was the immense joy and excitement of the men at the end. And I almost wanted to say to them, uh, 
do you like being kicked around? <laughs> that, that was pretty hard, wasn't it? And yet, I don't know if it was the love and vulnerability between them as brothers. I don't know if it was the, the gospel positive message that, that still came through. But uh, I think it's, you know, truth heals. Uh, illusion doesn't. And there's something, uh, at least in the male, but I'm sure in the female too, that when you know you've been told the truth and it wasn't sugar-coated or watered down and you were able to hear it and trust it and allow it, that uh, I feel like more of a person. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's the only way I can understand why the rights had such effect on so many men over the years. Uh, but I do think we had to give the positive message to and to put it in the context of, of the gospel itself. This is the common wonderful. This is the good news. And unless you have the good news, you simply won't have the heart uh, to bear the bad news, to, to face the bad news. Now, I think most of us are given that good news in embodied form by, by the look and the love of our parents and our family. Uh, it isn't by preaching, first of all. It's, it's this safety that so many of us got from our parenting and, and our family circle. Not that it was perfect, but it told us in an initial way that it was a benevolent universe. Then when we heard it from the pulpit, there was a, a, a preparedness to believe, oh my gosh, this is true. This might be true. It's okay. Because I've really met too many people who had pretty terrible parenting, uh, but were still able to believe the gospel because they so desired it, because uh, they didn't get it. So in both ways, either you got it or you didn't get it, but in both ways, it was an answer. It was an affirmation. It was a validation. So I hope that's what we're doing in initiation. And maybe, maybe one of the reasons, I, I'm no historian enough to prove it, but maybe one of the reasons it died out was that there was too much negative message, especially when we only initiated the warrior and not the lover and not the king or prince, um, that maybe it deserved to die out <laughs> because that is what happened historically. The one archetype became the preferred one that young men were initiated into. And here we had the whole, you might not be aware of this, but the oldest sacramental sacramentaries, which are the, the books that contain the rites of the sacraments, after the child was baptized, 
he was uh, anointed and he was told he was uh, a beloved son of God, our daughter of the Lord, and he was a priest, prophet, and king. Now, that became just a, you know, pro forma. I don't know that many people made much of it, but that part has lasted to this day. I anoint you priest, prophet, and king. I anoint you priestess, prophetess, and queen. Uh, and then we give them a candle and go on with the ceremony. But it's wonderful for me to see that that positive message followed the drowning message. Um, and that's what, of course, baptism is supposed to be. You're familiar because you're good evangelicals with the book of Romans where it says, do you not know when you were baptized, you were, bapti you were dipped into the dying or the drowning of Christ? Um, that's good stuff. <laughs> but we didn't give them the real hard message, and so they didn't long for the positive message. Maybe. That's one way of seeing it. Mm. I'm never I sure I'm right. These are just hunches, <laughs> intuition. Yeah, they're, they're powerful hunches. And one of the things that is coming um, to me in what you're saying about this relationship between the hardship of life and this, the yoke that God shares with us is um, how for many of us, we have not really lived through very hard things, to be honest. Um, many of us are privileged uh, to not have lived through, and I mean this in a collective way, I don't mean it in a personal suffering kind of way, because I think many, many have lived through personal suffering. But I mean, these kinds of collective experiences of suffering, I'm thinking that the last time maybe is in the, you know, World War II era, or, you know, these kinds of collective um, global moments of suffering that stop us in our tracks. And so, as some of us are dipping into that for the first time, we kind of, there, there is that awakening into that shared yoke reality. Um, and just how much more we need that in this moment, how much more I feel like my little evangelical heart is like turning to prayer and God and Jesus, because it's like, yes, it's like we need that sense of connection with the thou that is in it with well us. Well said, Brie. Uh, every day when I wake up the last 10 days or so, I, I have to tell myself again, this is happening to the whole world. And there's nothing comparable in your and my lifetime. Nothing. I mean, even the, the Second World War, uh, much of Africa and Latin America and Asia was not brought into. Some was. But this, there's, there's nobody exempt from it. Wow. Uh, what is it going to teach us? The, the, the opportunity is immense, but I suspect the suffering still to come is immense too. We're still getting the womp on the side of the head. So I, I think if we don't go somewhere, in our case, to the, the experience of the true self, 
mystical union, a beloved God. Um, I don't know why you wouldn't be really disillusioned right now. Because it sure doesn't feel like a safe universe. Uh, it feels like God is, I mean, the wrath of God suddenly feels like an experience. I don't know how many people theologize in that way, but I know historically, historically a lot did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, on that note, um, a mantra that's been coming back to me that I've swiped from a Wendell Berry poem is to practice resurrection. Where am I seeing life come out of death? And where are these moments within the suffering that I can hold the unity of it all? And, and where are those messages kind of fluttering out of uh, these pandemic times? Um, I just want to share that my, my daughter, Eva today got a, in the mail, she got a little caterpillar and she's going to, this, in this little kit, it's going to watch the whole process. Oh, I've done that before. It's wonderful. And I can think of no better time than now to bear witness to that transformation over the next few weeks because it's just so applicable to kind of our own context here as we're all hopefully entrenched in our homes and, and, and stirring in deep waters. Um, so it's a small celebration for our little family to be able to bear witness to that. But as I was wondering for you all, is there any silver linings that you've been bearing witness to in these times, in this, this past week? Let me just comment on yeah, that. How, how many days did they say it would take you? Did Were you told? Uh, I think the full process, that they said, it was going to take a couple of weeks. And so we just got five today. Wow. Well, yeah. you will go through a phase so you can be prepared to tell your children where it will look like just soup. It will all be liquid, and you'll think you did something wrong, that it's all dead inside. It's, uh, as I remember, it's about two days, and I said, oh, God, I got it in the light or whatever it was. <laughs> and then after that, all of a sudden, shape comes out of this soup that gets firmer and clearer every day. It's... Oh, my goodness, the butterfly is just the most amazing symbol of transformation. And most cultures have recognized that. So what a gift for your two. And your little boy will even remember it, I'm sure. I, yeah, I think so. I think so. It's They're already like surrounding it and just watching the caterpillars do nothing. You know, they're just kind of steady on it as it goes. But it's, <laughs> yeah, I'm super excited just to have to be with them in that um, and to trust that process. Has there been anything for either one of you in that same kind of vein? As I told you, I think earlier, I've been walking Opie here behind the house a lot uh, to watch the green day by day. The early spring green is, is a light green, very lovely. Uh, yesterday I worked in the garden here in the front of my house uh, has there been my pear tree? I can see it right now from my front window. Is in full bloom. It's uh, all white right now. So it, I guess it's almost entirely nature. Uh, this is happening. I, I'm very glad now. 
if this was happening in January when I was closed inside and it was cold, honestly, it would have been much harder. Much Welcome harder. to my life. That's what it's still like here in Michigan. <laughs> you keep saying it's so dark in my room. I'm like, no, 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 Richard, that's just Michigan. It's just this dark all the time. <laughs> I had such four wonderful years in Michigan that I, I don't have any bad memories. So. Well, I can remind you of what they are if you want. Uh, one thing else I'll share in that regard of a silver lining, um, I was thinking about nature too, Richard, because I do feel like our our attention is heightened right now because we're, we're, we're orienting toward the preciousness of life. And um, in, that, in that regard, I also am noticing my kids are getting along. I mean, they, they've always gotten along really, really well. Um, and I've been fortunate in that, that they're really good friends, but the, the quality of their tenderness to one another and toward me is also heightened mm -hmm. because there's this sense of while we all sit in our cell known as this house, they recognize like, okay, this is what we got to work with. <laughs> there's nowhere for us to go. So I think that the, the way in which I'm noticing them relate to each other is very um, tender and precious mm -hmm. too. And to me. Oh, uh, yeah. You got to watch for the consolations or you won't experience them. You won't let them happen unless you're willing to enjoy them in the moment and you're doing it. I'm sure it isn't too hard because they're your two precious little boys. But Oh, no, Richard, it's hard. <laughs> it's, it's hard. <laughs> you still have to pay attention. Yeah. I mean, I love them, but uh, it's, it's uh, tough to <laughs> So let's let's pivot now into the second hope of initiation number two, um, you know, where you say uh, it is true that you're not important. And yet, do you not know that your name is written in heaven? And uh, one of the things I've been noticing this past week in myself and with my colleagues at work and my friends, um, work, my colleagues working online and my friends is just how many deep existential questions are coming up for each of us. Um, it's almost as if absent our normal operating systems, our egos are fully exposed and vulnerable. <laughs> so we're having these questions of like, wait, who am I? What am I doing with my life? What, what am I giving my life to? And a lot of insecurities are surfacing. I'm noticing this with, with myself and others. So how does the hope of this initiation remember, reconnect us to the eternal, to a to that true self-identity that's eternal. You know, I'm of the opinion now, I mean, others have been, this isn't, I'm not the first one to discover this for sure. But I really do believe now all great spiritual truths are paradoxical. If you look at them deep enough, you can say the exact opposite is true in another situation. And that would certainly apply to this second message. You're not that important. You're just a little shit. You came around a few years ago. You're going to die in a few years. That ego humiliation is necessary uh, or you don't appreciate, long for, need, or desire that your name is also written in heaven. Those two truths can be true at the same time. And I think it's the humble person who knows he or she is not that important 
who is most able to appreciate my name is written in heaven. I'm a beloved daughter of God. Uh, we, um, we don't know how to teach that way anymore. And I, I think you'd probably both recognize in our rather soft American culture, you've been told as parents to just give the second message, you know, to pin I am special buttons on your children and to keep affirming them. I see it, to be very honest, in a staff over the years that any corrective is not usually well received because they were raised this way to think, I don't deserve to be challenged or corrected. My job is always to be affirmed, or my right is always to be affirmed. I don't think we're going to create strong people that way, or great people that way. Uh, and reality, well, here's the big thing, reality is not going to treat you that way. Uh, so we're not helping you to do nothing but affirm you and tell you you are the most important person in the world. That's just not true. And, of course, we hear it on TV all the time, you know. I can do anything I want to do. Uh, this is the American belief system. That's a lie. You can't. <laughs> you can't do anything you want to do. And to give the young ego that impression is to send them on an utterly false journey we're set up for huge disappointment if not rage when reality does not treat them that way so to sign our children are baptized to sign them with the cross uh, if, if you make that sign clear i always say resurrection will take care of itself you will be ready to experience, you will long for, you will need resurrection. Uh, one more thing that I know you've heard me say before, forgive me, I repeat so many of my ideas, but when Eric Fromm said the, uh, the healthiest people he knew had a combination between their two parents of conditional and unconditional love, uh, and people didn't like that back in the 60s. It was, no, both parents should give the child all the time unconditional love. And I don't think you need a brutal parent uh, or a cruel parent, but I know when my mother, who I got condi uh, conditional love from, uh, I still knew she loved me, uh, very much, in fact. But I still knew that there were boundaries, that there were things I had to do uh, to earn it. And that gave me, a, I don't know why it works that way. I know it isn't pure gospel, but it gives you a boundaried sense of your own identity. Uh, so I, I offer that to you too, even as I know very loving parents. But don't be afraid to uh, 
let them know that they are important, <laughs> but you're not that important. Do you understand? <laughs> I'm, I'm only laughing because I'm thinking like, there's just a lot of conditional love right now in <laughs> our world. Like right now, I think the only kind of love that's being experienced in households is, is conditional. Like you will go outside and you will enjoy it or else I will go crazy. <laughs> anyway, yeah. yeah. Giving them re reality mm -hmm. <laughs> or even the, the cloudiness of Michigan and the <laughs> coldness of Michigan. There's a little reality. God isn't asking all Michiganders, do you want a sunny day today? Mm -hmm. Yes. He's saying, I don't care. You're getting clouds. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way most of our life is going to be. Wow. And um, you're taught well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you when you you're taught that, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, I think every parent is probably breathing a sigh of relief right now, especially for those who are lucky enough to still be working from home. Because for my kids, they're so used to seeing me after work, and right. so they have my well close to undivided attention. But now I have to say, not now. I have to go back to work, and again, it kind of reaffirms that idea that. Life is not all about what they want and desire in that moment, that there's other responsibilities right. we have to tend to in this time. It's just that simple for a little kid. You know, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be the womp on the side of the head. I hope not. But just little ways we have to do this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. 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 And I find this lesson on a very broad point to be just very healing. Like, if we are all already chosen by God, there is no need for us to posture or for a competitive status game. That we can even turn the system on its head and, and celebrate each other's wins. You know, and I feel like uh, this type of communion paradigm relaxes the ideas of domination as the only way for social order to continue. And I feel like that's a possibility right now. Richard, do you have a sense of how this communal sense is already alive um, and the seeds of it are, are of what Jesus called the reign of God that they're occurring right now in new imagination about what it could look like to live in a more communal paradigm uh, where our names are already written eternally so we don't have to continue to fight Perf. over scraps of food or hoard but mm. actually have it be a moment of generativity don't have to compete with one another for righteousness uh, for security. How do we move from a highly competitive world to a world that knows we're all in this together? The only answer I can give, Paul, is whatever is happening right now and looks like it might happen, could happen for two more months, like nothing we've ever experienced in our lifetime. Uh, the opportunities in this for mental rearrangement, for emotional rearrangement worldwide are massive, just massive. If I were God and I were wanting to find a way for, for humanity to wake up that it's one, that uh, competition... Uh, dualistic fighting isn't going to get us there. I couldn't have thought of anything better. I, I'm not saying, again, God caused this pandemic. 
but I don't know what else would have done it. Now we're not at the end point yet, but uh, the opportunities in this for transformation are endless. And we're already seeing it in uh, the little groupings that are forming to relate in different ways, to connect in different ways, to help in different ways, because we can't do it in the usual way. So what's that called? Imagination. If this sparks the human imagination, and to recognize the Mexican body suffers the same way as the American body, uh, this could be very good. Very good. Mm. I, I, mean, I feel what like I'm saying the obvious. For, tease something better <laughs> out of me. But. No, you know what? It, it may seem obvious to you, Richard, but I think in this time that we're experiencing, it's like we need, to, we need that loving mirror again and again and again because, because many of us are so unaccustomed to being in this situation that there's almost like a little bit of ongoing denial and so to really focus in on how will we change through this? <laughs> what great opportunity are we being given here to reconsider? And I don't mean great as in everything's great. I mean, great as in momentous. Um, even in the midst of this suffering and tragedy that's going to touch each of us. You know, one of the thoughts that I'm having now is like how two months ago, we were completely focused in our country around you know, the, the bipartisan issues and an ongoing squabbling and an, a sense of, um, you know, division that was just eating away at our country. And so it's wild to think about that, that just a few months ago, that was really what was populating the news, populating our collective consciousness as a nation. And so I wonder, even as that drops out and we realize, wait, what was that? What were we doing? What um, were we doing? Um, the insanity we were sinking into. Yeah. And how autocratic governments, uh, the Chinese to begin with, Iran following, have kept it secret from the rest of the world. And let's be honest, our own government, uh, we didn't want this whole thing to be talked about because now our dirty laundry, our fallibility, our vulnerability is out there for everybody to see. That the Chinese body, the American body, uh, gets a virus just like everybody else. And yeah. even governments can't put a stop to it. This is very humbling for the, for the corporate ego. And that's what it seems to me needed humbling. Mm because there were autocrats emerging all over the world, uh, giving their people the false impression they could solve all problems. We were slipping into less, slipping out of reality <laughs> and into more and more unreality. Mm. It's, it's such a, um, that leveling is a great humbling awakening <laughs> for us to continue to lean into. And um, with this particular redemptive arc of this initiation, right, there's also that sense of hope 
that even as we're being leveled and even as we're learning a very, very hard lesson, that our name is written in heaven. It makes me think of the scripture of, you know, God's eye is on the sparrow, This mm-hmm. that the, even the sparrow is is seen. And so for those of us who might be feeling deeply isolated alone um, in this moment, this this can be a great comfort to be like, wait, <laughs> we're not unseen. Mm-hmm. We are held by a deeper love and reality. Mm-hmm. And you... You need to make space for it. You need to look for it. You need to want it. If you say, I don't want it, it probably will not be experienced. You know, Richard, this conversation has obviously been so rich, and there's so much here that is so nurturing for us in this moment. Um, I'm wondering if we need to stop here and just let let us uh, as a community digest what we've covered in those two um, initiation rites, the redemptive arc, and maybe we can pick up the next three uh, in another episode, if that sounds good. It sounds fine. All right. Thank you for caring so much. And I hope if there's just one sentence you said or I said, that's very often all people need, Mm -hmm. the right word at the right time. They don't need big theological tomes. Reality is the great initiator, not my formal initiation rites. And I think by uh, interviewing me this way, you're helping us to make that point. Mm. So, So thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Our pleasure. Thanks, Richard. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.